0: Fucked Up Bedtime Stories for Adults is a short audio series full of strange stories for stranger times. The world is a messy, unnerving and complicated place. Fucked Up Bedtime Stories is a horror anthology inspired by the unconscious anxieties and dread from our times that we have bubbling at the surface. For adults only to listen at bedtime from our dream theater into your dreams. Listener discretion is advised. The Future is in the Wastelands, by Sonia Kelly, performed by Justine Mitchell. The firm Timothy worked for loomed high upon the 15th floor of a 30-storey building. An ostentatious high-rise perched in the crook of the river's neck, it afforded its workers the most glorious views of the city. For twenty years, he'd sat at the same desk and watched the skyline grow from a cluster of modest office blocks to a majestic citadel of glass and concrete. Someone out there made all that, he'd think. Someone out there dared to dream. Out beyond the neon fringes of the city lay the forsaken wasteland of Bennett's Docks, where the warehouses of the manufacturing era lay in empty ruins. Once a thriving industrial hub, it now formed a foreboding no-man's land between the suburbs and the newly minted central business district. For some reason, the city had outgrown its connection to the docks the way one might outgrow a lover. Perhaps the old docks were considered too grim, too ugly, too forlorn to imagine living in. It was, as yet, unfathomable to look at those cement carcasses and think of home. Not Tim. He knew it was only a matter of time before every echoing husk within a 20-kilometer radius of the central business district would sooner or later be gobbled up by developers and transformed. Every garage and garret would find itself stripped of its former purpose and gentrified. He'd seen it happen over the last two decades from his very own office chair. Industrial chic, they called it. It was going on all over the world. Empty shells awaiting the wrecking ball were suddenly being snapped up for a song, flipped into apartment complexes and hotels, then resold for millions. People out there were making a fortune. Those at least that dared to dream. So what was he waiting for? Tim stood at the window of the 15th floor, stirring his tea. As a child, he lived for Lego. The click of the bricks in his tiny hands brought him endless joy. He had always wanted to be an architect, but his father pushed him into accounting. A safer bet, his father said. And now, here he was at the age of 45, a chartered nobody dribbling away his day, trying to find ways of saving rich people money if there was ever a time to recapture a lost dream. It was now. Tim wasn't sure what to expect when he gathered his colleagues to tell them he was leaving his job to go into urban renewal. But it wasn't laughter. Peals of laughter. Bent double, belly clutching, snorting guffaws of it. The Don Perignon, he'd splashed out on, sprayed in unapologetic geysers right back in his face. They assumed he was joking. Until he took his phone and showed them his first investment. A decommissioned warehouse on an acre of scrubland, wedged deep in the armpit of the river. Hand to hand, the phone went round in bleak silence but for the odd dry gulp. Finally, it landed in the palm of Sharon from H.R., whose eyes instantly bulged with silent tears. She, of all people, understood the perils of daring to dream. When her husband quit his job in Life Assurance and left her to pursue a career as an ayahuasca guide, the home they'd shared for 11 years became instantly meaningless. As if the very bricks themselves became strangers, and she, like a dried pea, rattling around inside them. For a while, she entertained the idea of quitting her job to fulfill a secret dream of her own, to become a dolphin therapy trainer, but she fought the urge. She may be all alone now, but at least she has job security, a pension, and a warm dry roof over her head. Things the pursuit of pipe dreams can never bring you. When Tim's wife left him on the other hand, he sold his house, quit his job, drained his bank account and put every penny on red to pursue a career in flipping abandoned properties. That afternoon on the 15th floor, she watched him beam insistently in the hope that one of his colleagues would be impressed. It was not to be. Tim saw her tears and loathed her pity. Poor Sharon. He'd be gone this evening, and tomorrow she'd still be here, namelessly crunching numbers for a CEO she'd never met while he was out there making his mark on the city's skyline. Tim stepped towards the window, laid a hand on the triple glazing. Twenty years ago, this was a wilderness. Then someone came along and turned that useless heath into the gleaming hillock of urban renewal it is today, and that is exactly what I am going to do right here. He traced his finger down the river where the skyscrapers trail to a set of isolated blocks clinging to the gums of the city like a bad set of teeth. His soon-to-be ex-colleague stood agog. Tim charged his glass and raised a toast to his new adventure. No one moved. Not an eyebrow. Not an elbow. There is no question that Tim had absolutely lost his mind. But Tim, that's just empty wasteland. No one even lives there. No one lives there now. But the city is expanding east, drifting right towards that warehouse. So you can snigger into your silver-plated cufflinks all you want. Go on. Whip out your tall poppy secateurs and cut me down to size. But there is no way I am going to spend another second sitting at that poxy desk helping another billionaire balloon head on the other side of the world get even richer. I am telling you, the future is in those wastelands. Inside everyone lies a path not taken. Well today I'm taking mine and one day you look out across that river and remember this moment you will weep with regret and then we'll see who's laughing. And with that Tim downed his Dom Perignon headed for the lift out of the life he'd been living and into the unknown. His future was in the wasteland. Tim's approach was simple. It's all about the joggers, see? They're the outliers. You see joggers bouncing about a rundown area at five o'clock in the morning? Sniff the air. That's not sweat you're smelling, that's progress. The next signs of urban renewal are the pop-up coffee shops made out of shipping containers. Then come the Whole Food stores, Rainbow Flags, gourmet food trucks, microbreweries, hybrid SUVs, contemporary art galleries and vegan butchers. Next thing you know, the starting price for a warehouse conversion is north of a million big ones. All it takes is one bright spark to start the engine. It's not like he hadn't done his homework. On his first evening at the warehouse, "'He lit his brazier on the steps outside the open doors "'and watched the shadows of the flames "'dance across its inner walls. "'He sat on the stoop of his porter cabin "'with the last of his port "'and surveyed his investment. "'Such a lonely, magnificent beast it was, "'richly perfumed with the scent "'of dead birds and carpet mould, "'its roof clipped and pinged "'with the drips of corroded pipes.' Its floor caked with the dust of broken ceiling tiles. Its roof beams thickly iced with four decades' worth of pigeon droppings. The walls were streaked with rivers of rusty water and the sewer pipes sang with the busy scuttle of rats. Tim flexed his nostrils and breathed it in. Fear not, my friend, he whispered. Just over the chain-link fence where the warehouse car park met the train tracks, the city light rail tugged along in six-minute intervals. There was, as yet, no stop for Bennett's docks. One day soon, there would be. That fence will disappear, and in its place will be a gleaming light rail station. The car park will be a concourse of reclaimed brick, flanked by high-end convenience stores, eateries perhaps a yoga centre. On Friday nights, the air will be a heady blend of tickling prosecco flutes and sourdough pizza ovens, and Tim's beloved warehouse will be the centrepiece, majestically restored to a state of arrested decay, each window a picture postcard of contemporary urban living. Tim took out his notebook and began to sketch his master plan. He had never felt more fulfilled in all his life. Meanwhile, across the river, the lights on the 15th floor of his old office block winked and blinked as night descended. All but for one corner, where Sharon from HR clicked off from a transatlantic zoom. She wheeled her chair towards the window, pressed her binoculars to the glass and found a speck of yellow. Tim's brazier fire was burning bright. Each night, before she left for home, she checked to see if he was safe and well. The autumn had brought a chill with it. She wondered, should she visit, bring him a flask of soup? But she thought better of it. He'd been quite aloof since the previous summer when she noticed the ring from his wedding finger had disappeared. His left hand now bore the same fleshy divot she recognised from hers. She'd offered him a chocolate biscuit once, but he pretended not to hear her. He was in his angry phase. Perhaps he feared her offer of comfort came with her own caveat of her own needs. She kept her distance after that. Tim could not bear to be needed by anyone, ever again. According to the rumours, on the day their second son went to university, Tim's wife Claire packed her bags and left. Through the hustle and bustle and daily grind of life, the love had seeped out of their 20-year marriage, and Tim had failed to act. He blamed himself. He could never remember to buy milk, no matter how many times she asked him. Once or twice you could forgive a person, but week after week for 25 years? that spelled to her an absence of consideration she could not forgive in him, nor continue to endure. So she shed him, as a butterfly sheds a chrysalis, and flew off to save the turtles in Greece, a lifelong dream she sequestered for fear of ridicule. Their sons were now off chasing their dreams too, and rarely picked up the phone. Now it was time for Tim to do the same. Like Claire's turtles... He needed to rekindle a passion, something he could lose himself in the doing of. It was then he remembered the Lego, up on the 15th floor. Sharon from HR stayed on for a few hours that first night. In one hand, she held her binoculars to her face, and with the other, she gently flicked the switch of her desk lamp on and off, off and on, over and over the rhythms of Morse code she'd learned in Girl Scouts. Click, click. Click, click, click. You are not alone. Until the yellow fleck of Tim's fire sputtered out. Winter winds put an end to night sketching at the brazier. He'd lost a number of valuable drawings to sudden gusts, not to mention sparks from the fire landing on his clothes. He invested in a generator to power a set of floodlights and a blow heater to keep him warm as he worked. The drawings were magnificent. Every prospective building contractor said so. They admired his guts. But the plot it sat on was too adrift from the city's current growth trajectory to consider taking on a project of this size. And with the city's council plans to build a light rail stop put on hold, any development at Bennett's docks could simply not get off the ground. No public demand. This was the council's eternal reply to Tim's request to reopen their plans for a light rail stop outside his door. For Tim, the remedy was simple. If there was indeed no public demand as they professed, then public demand would have to be made. Tim knew it was a common trick of the building trade to put an attractive hoarding outside building sites where commuters pass, aspirational images like a freshly shaven businessman standing at a bedroom window as he deftly does his tie a young woman arriving home in designer leisure wear glowing from her game of squash her snow-capped teeth gleaming in evening sun he got out his notebook and wrote at the top of the page, marketing campaign. It was early on Friday morning when Sharon looked through her binoculars and saw Tim scaling the facade of the warehouse, dangling from climbing ropes trussed to a crumbling chimney stack. Oh God, she thought, he's going to kill himself. She lifted the phone to call the police, the fire brigade, an ambulance... But she knew if she did, it would be curtains for Tim. He'd be arrested or sectioned, his dream in tatters. She couldn't be the one to pull the plug. Instead, she watched him all morning, tying what looked like bedding to the gutter line of the roof. Then around noon, he produced a kitchen knife and cut a rope. The bedsheets fell in one mammoth kabuki drop, cloaking the building letters. Bennett's Docks, the ultimate experience in luxury living. Dare to dream. It took a couple of days, but something was beginning to pearl among the chattering classes, all right. Seven photographs of his dare to dream sign posted on social media, all taken from the passing trains. An encouraging start. He went down to the chain-link fence that meets the tracks and waved his thanks. That's when the idea hit him. What is the very first sign that an area is on the up? Of course. Why had he not thought of it before? It has been quite some time since Tim put on a pair of running shoes, but still, monkey see, monkey do, All day long, he jogged inside the perimeter of the car park where the chain link met the tracks. Starting at the far corner, he'd wait until a train was 20 metres away, then he was off. He reckoned he had a good seven or eight seconds of clear visibility before the last carriage passed him by. After about 20 runs, his endorphins were pumping nicely. This is it. This is what they need to see. Outliers, fit and healthy people fearlessly tackling the lesser trodden paths of the city. If only he could hold their attention for longer. A slender trail, about three feet wide, ran between the tracks and the fence, as far as his eye could see. It took a number of goes, but each attempt only served to embolden him for the next. On his final try, he nicked his inner thigh on the razor wire as he vaulted over, but the adrenaline from the fall gave him the juice to keep pace with the trains. The look on the passengers' faces as they glanced out the windows only to see his head bobbing along beside them, the muffled gasps and squeals, palms pressed against the glass in spellbound disbelief, Finally, there was life in the wasteland. By late afternoon, Tim cursed himself for forgetting to bring water. Mm. As dusk fell, his lungs hissed and his muscles began to seize. His jaw developed a curious tightness and he was burning up despite the bite in the air. His legs no longer had the power to scale the fence, so he found a loose spot, pulled it up and dragged his body under what a day, Tim thought. He was hungry and delirious with either thirst or pride. Someone had to be first, didn't they? Someone had to dare to dream. Someone had to withstand the financial and physical hardship, not to mention the ridicule. with So many of his fellow pioneers. Thomas Edison was labelled a conspicuous failure. That fellow with the vacuum cleaners. Dyson, mocked and jeered. Steve Jobs. Alexander Graham Bell, Jesus of Nazareth, Richard Branson and his hot air balloon, that woman who sat up in her chair, Cheryl Sandberg, all denigrated and derided. And where would we be without them? What a privilege it was on this winter's night to walk, to run in their shoes. How much sweeter his success would be with this moment as a footnote. Blood oozed down his thigh, squelching in the heel of his shoe, and the tatters of his tracksuit leg fluttered in the breeze. He was halfway across the car park when there came a distant whirring sound. Soft at first, perhaps a train. No, not a train, nor a truck, nor riverboat either. The unmistakable whoosh of chopper blades. Yes! The word is out. Tim flung his fist at the night sky in triumph as 60,000 lumens of searchlight descended on the warehouse roof. He checked his watch. 5.35. Time to make the evening news. He dragged himself through the double doors, grabbed a can of spray paint and scrambled up the stairs, his right knee now locked into solid stone no matter, this was too good an opportunity to miss. He dragged himself through the roof shaft. A sudden fall of rain had made the surface slippery, but manageable, so long as the rope around his waist held tight. An icy wind beat his fingers stiff as he began to spray the words, Dare to Dream. And all the while, the chopper searchlight swirled like God's ungainly torch. Two more letters, and there was no question the name of Bennett's docks would be on the evening news and on the lips of everyone who saw it. He looked across at his old office building, so vulgar and out of date, and that stupid light blinking on and off and off and on that no one could be bothered to fix. Just two more letters, Tim... "'All you have to do is reach a little more.' "'But the rope wouldn't allow him reach far enough to paint the A.' "'He planted his feet firmly into the guttering, "'untied the rope and edged his way along. "'Just two more letters. He'd be done.' "'Across the river, Sharon from HR watched through her binoculars "'as the searchlight's cone swirled across the roof of Tim's beloved building.' the chopper blade stirring up the air, sending gusts across the bedsheet sign, ripping it from its moorings. Up it went, like a ghost to heaven, swallowing her vision of Tim as he teetered on the roof's edge, her hand upon the switch of her desk lamp. You are not alone. Until... It was time for her to catch the last train home. This piece was directed by Richard Twyman, with sound design by Zana.